Hello, and welcome to the fourth edition of the Draculina Podcast. I am Hugh Gallagher, owner of Draculina Publishing, and this time out I am interviewing a B-movie legend, writer, producer, director, Tim Ritter. I've featured Tim in various issues of the Draculina magazine over the years, as he has had a long career in the B-movie biz. Tim shot Super 8mm movies and videos as a kid, but really made his impression on the B-movie world with his first legitimate feature, Truth or Dare, A Critical Madness. This movie was shot at the very beginning of the video craze back in 1986. Shot on film with a budget of over $200,000. And he did this all when he was only 18 years old. Back in those days, there was no internet. If you wanted to know something about the B-movie biz, you had to read books, magazine articles, or actually talk to the people that were making the movies. I know before I made Gorgasm, I had talked to both Tim Ritter and Donald Farmer multiple times on the phone, and even written them letters. Both Tim and Donald were always very helpful, gave me advice when they could, hooked me up with people I needed, or just helped with moral support. The great thing about Tim was he made this high-caliber movie, but he was just a regular, really nice guy, which made anyone out there that ever thought about making a movie say, hey, maybe I can do this too. Before we jump into this, let me plug the website. At Draculina.com, you can get back issues of Draculina, Oriental Cinema, She, Pinup, and many more magazines, as well as DVDs and books. If you're listening to this podcast, use the code POD25, that's P-O-D-2-5, and get 25% off your order. This is good until October 31st, 2019. Find links on the site to my YouTube channel with Horrible Hue's Coffin Reviews, where Horrible Hue reviews many B-movies. Check it all out at Draculina.com. Due to the length of this interview, I've broken it into two parts. The second part will come out next week, so don't miss it. Just simply follow the Draculina podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever you listen to your podcast on, and you'll be notified when a new episode comes out. So, without further ado... Here's part one of the interview with Tim Ritter. When was the first time you picked up a movie camera and knew you wanted to make movies? Well, the first time I picked up a movie camera and kind of knew that I wanted to make movies was probably somewhere in the 1970s. It was the uh, family Super 8 movie camera, and uh, I saw images on the screen that my dad took and I realized you could capture those images and those moments in time and my neighbor across the street happened to be Joel D. Weinkoop um, who was a good friend and also my babysitter uh, he was a few years older than me and my sister and he would babysit for us sometimes and he would make Super 8 movies and after seeing uh, Joel make uh, a Bionic Boy Super 8 movie and the footage uh, that my dad took, I remember the Super 8 camera broke once, and my dad took a bunch of footage of me running around, and it ended up like in slow motion, like on the $6 million man. And I just saw the possibilities of, you know, creating my own stuff. So probably in the, in the 70s, and then by 1978 or 79, somewhere in there, probably the end of 78, I was making movies like Super Panther, which was kind of a combination comedy spoof on Superman the movie and, and the Pink Panther movie. So definitely in the late 
mid to late 70s and of course seeing Jaws and then later Halloween and Star Wars always you know inspired me to make movies and once I saw Halloween I, I realized that just with a pretty girl a point of view shot and a rubber knife you know I could start making my own kind of cheap slasher movies that were influenced by that. Now how did a kid talk a company into putting in $200,000 to make Truth or Dare a Critical Madness? Well, Truth or Dare Critical Madness was uh, a movie that actually evolved from a smaller short that Joel Weinkoop and I did. I first did a movie called Day of the Reaper on Super 8 Film and saw the potential of video stores, you know, kind of making uh, a movie. I was making Super 8 movies in high school, and I saw that video stores would present kind of intuitively, I just was reading Fangoria and how Herschel Gordon Lewis uh, made his movies and kind of lugged them around the 35 millimeter prints to various drive-ins around the country. So that was an inspiration. And so probably by the 10th grade, I was reading books, uh, maybe even the 9th grade, like Splatter Movies by John McCarthy. And I was studying that uh, format as far as, you know, exploitation movies being made and distributed. So I saw the potential for my work to be seen and distributed to video stores, which to me were kind of like drive-ins, you know. And they were owned by independent people who might purchase those, you know, your movie from you if you had a movie. So my initial idea was, of course, take Super 8 film, make a original feature with original music. At the time I just used soundtrack music from you know vinyl scores, my favorite stuff, to score my Super 8 movies. And uh, then package it somehow, put it in some kind of clamshell uh, with artwork, and then go around and you know sell it to the mom and pop stores. It would be great exposure, kind of like the drive-in Maverick days. So that's uh, Truth of Dare Critical Madness uh, evolved from the short and twisted illusions an anthology film that I collaborated with uh, Joel Weinkoop and Al Nicolosi, who Al Nicolosi was a good friend of mine uh, at the time, and uh, he worked at a TV station, so he kind of trained me and was a mentor on lots of things like, you know, analog video editing, shooting, and he had a video production company that hired me, and I learned, you know, all the stuff at the time that was relevant from him. So when we made Twisted Illusions, which was like a little cheap homage to uh, Creepshow and Twilight Zone, uh, the favorite of those shorts was one I wrote and directed called Truth or Dare, which had Joel Weinkoop in it. And uh, pretty much uh, it was about a man who got, his I guess his wife left him, and through hallucinations, he kind of, you know, reverted back to the game of truth or dare and cut himself to pieces and, and, and his kind of psychosis, blaming, blaming himself for uh, the relationship deteriorating. So that one was a favorite. So I expanded that as we distributed, self-distributed uh, uh, Twisted Illusions to video stores. I expanded that segment into a feature-length script while I was 16, 17 years old, 17 years old um, in, you know, my senior year in high school. That's pretty much all that I worked on, especially in the second half of the senior year. I uh, was writing that Truth or Dare feature-length script, and um, as we distributed Twisted Illusions, we got it, Twisted Illusions, to a company called Video Swap International, 
out of, uh, I guess, Northbrook, Illinois. And they were uh, kind of a broker and seller of uh, used tapes and, and VHS at the time. Did real well with it, and they had, you know, accounts all over the country. And they were looking to break into the uh, direct-to-video market, which was just kind of emerging, the whole concept. Uh, of course, adult movies were being made and shot on video. So, you know, we had this thought that we were going to make uh, Truth or Dare, uh, a Critical Madness. At the time, it was just called Critical Madness, based on, you know, the Truth or Dare short into a feature whether we had to shoot it on beta sp or and you know have like a sixty thousand dollar budget or even lower and our thought was we were just going to make it but as we were distributing twisted illusions we kind of, we kind of got with these van guys and copies got to video swap international and they picked up twisted illusions and they were really interested in what we were doing at the time so they said hey um you know we want to get into the feature business I think at the time they were distributing 555, another shot on video, direct-to-video movie of that era, or it might have been shortly, somewhere when we were filming Truth or Dare or something like that. I forget exactly when it was, but I know that movie kind of came up somewhere in there. And uh, anyway, to make a long story short, I made a financing video. Uh, we flew up there, Al Nicolosi and I. We pitched them the script. Uh, we had storyboards. We were going to make the movie one way or the other because we were. It was just something that. Um, it was just something that it was in my blood at the time, and maybe not knowing, uh, maybe not just understanding that you couldn't do this. It was just something that I said, "Hey, I'm gonna do this," and I think that's how you you know have to make movies. It's just like you just start making them. We had the uh, Miami Vice casting people working with us. Um, Miami Vice was really big. There was a couple other TV shows at the time down in South Florida, uh, the Burt Reynolds Playhouse Theater. All those places were places you know where, where we reached out to to find actors and we did open casting calls and and all that sort of thing. So the movie was going to happen one way or the other, whether it was six thousand, sixty thousand, or whatever. And as the VSI International looked at what we had to offer and all the things we were doing, they pretty much said, "Hey, let's 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 do this." So it went from sixty thousand to like nearly three hundred thousand, two hundred fifty, two hundred seventy-five thousand dollar budget. Instead of filming on um, video, um, they brought in a producer, Yale Wilson, who had uh, worked on Death Wish and a couple other movies. Um, and we decided to shoot on 16 millimeter film, and at the time I thought that was great because, of course, all the classic movies that I loved. And still love Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Last House on the Left, um, Evil Dead. All those movies were shot on 16 millimeter, and you know had a really nice run. And I believe uh, I want to say I'm not sure Night of the Living Dead. I'm not sure if that was 16 or 35, but it was just a thing where you know in the 80s and you know 70s and 80s you could shoot on 16 millimeter. Maniac, of course, and you know that was just a thing to do. So we we're going to shoot on 16 transfer to video, edit on video, and pretty much once we went up there, it kind of sealed the deal, but I graduated high school, worked odd jobs, kept working on this, and then before I was 18, I think I'd signed the letter of intent and the contract to make the movie, and 
before you knew it, uh, three, four months out of high school, we were, you know, I was flying back and forth to Chicago. The money was coming through. They set up Peerless Films with Twisted, I set up Twisted Illusions Incorporated, which was a co-production company on it. And we began to actually make the movie. So it was a case of a distributor financing the movie, which is the best case because, you know, they're financing it and they have an outlet to, you know, get the movie out there. So it ended up doing pretty well in the uh you know direct the video market when it finally came out in june 1986 which was about a year after i graduated high school so again it took like two years of my life uh, even before way before i graduated high school i was working on truth or dare twisted illusions the truth or dare feature script the uh location tape uh doing the casting stuff and i mean i was doing this constantly around high school so you know when i was you know finishing up high school as a senior and that's that's kind of how the whole thing got made it was just a case of myself al nicolosi and joel joel weinkoop um you know we all wanted to we had worked together on twisted illusions and come together and i met both of those guys uh and re-met joel because he had moved away from when i was a kid uh, making and selling day of the reaper so i met those guys actually selling day of the reaper and we all connected, made Twisted Illusions, and then it just, you know, evolved into this other project, which became Truth or Dare Critical Madness. And was lucky enough to get it out there pretty fast around the Blood Cult era. I think they beat us a little bit as far as getting a movie out to the masses, to the video stores, before our, right before ours came out. And, uh, you know, it ended up selling 30,000 copies out of the gate, getting up in to just about every mom and pop store at the time of course blockbuster video came in later bought out all the mom and pop stores and copies of you know my stuff day of the reaper some twisted illusions and of course truth of dare critical madness and later killing spree and some of my later stuff uh you know all got bought up and into the blockbuster system just by default as they kind of absorbed all these smaller ones so so that's pretty much the story, you know, it was just the determination of a young high school guy, kid, out of nowhere, no connections in the business, and I was just obsessed with doing it. Some of the things that inspired me were, you know, reading about the success of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and how Toby Hooper and that group just, you know, was a kind of a do-or-die thing. And of course, reading about, you know, other movies, Psycho, uh, Sylvester Stallone was a huge influence with, like, the Rocky and the Rambo movies and the way he sold Rocky and didn't sell out and was going to direct the movie or actually star in the movie at that time and or refuse to sell the script no matter what. So those stories kind of fueled my, you know, young and nubile uh, perception of, of, you know, what you could do. And again, it's still, I look back on it and I was, like, very lucky to get you know that kind of money and and get started on that with no connections pretty much you know i wanted to do regional movie making like wes craven and sean cunningham did in in connecticut with last house on the left and of course sam raimi and the group they shot evil dead in tennessee romero was like pittsburgh David Cronenberg was, of course, Canada. So I had that same mindset of, you know, I'm not going to go to Hollywood to make movies. I'm going to make movies where I live. And at the time, I lived in South Florida. And I'm going to bring the projects to myself or I'm going to generate them where I live. And that's pretty much how, you know, I got started, uh, you know, with uh, Truth of Air Critical Madness. How did Yale Wilson get the directorial credit on the initial release? He doesn't really have any other credits on the IMBD. Uh, Yale Wilson 
was a producer of, I think he did a lot of documentaries. He shot second unit on the movie, the Charles Bronson Death Wish movie. He had a lot of connections in the business. And he was hired by uh, Peerless VSI when we made Truth or Dare a Critical Madness to kind of oversee the production because, of course, I had no experience when you, you know, when you first start out making your first feature movie, uh, usually the director doesn't have much experience other than self-generated uh, shorts, um, self-generated projects, uh, or that kind of thing. You know, to get how do you get commercial experience? It's just kind of a fluke. So there's always somebody that's going to oversee you, whether it's suits, uh, company, corporate, some kind of producer, a line producer, some kind of insurance, uh, you know, bonding company or whatever, completion bond, whatever it might be. So when you're first starting out, of course, people are, you know, kind of leery because they're putting hundreds of thousands of dollars into something where you've got to, you know, have something that's going to be semi-commercial or hopefully commercial enough to make that money back or whatever in the future. So, uh, so he was kind of hired to just oversee everything and uh, make sure that I did it right and actually guide me through the process as he knew it. And it was a great learning experience because he did have a lot of knowledge. Went through the storyboard processing. Uh, as I mentioned, we had already started the casting. We already had locations. I had videotapes of that, and that was part of the way that uh, you know I got the project started. And he hired accountants, and he had done a lot of production work, he and his wife, uh, Sue, uh, in Chicago. They had extensive TV credits at the time. I don't know if they're listed on IMDb or what now. Um, but behind the scenes documentaries and he'd done some adult movies and some other stuff that he showed me. So he appeared to be pretty cool, pretty legit. And as I said, he, he did it was like a crash course in, in movie making for me from production boards to what the second unit director does to gaffers, electricians, uh, lenses, all that sort of thing uh, You know, in production that I didn't know. Even though I had, I had done enough where I could complete things and everything, There's you always learn on you know making anything in life. You never know everything. You've got to be open to learning new things. Technology is always changing. You learn from other people who are you know, experts at their craft, whether it be special effects or whatever, you've always got to collaborate with people, so you never know everything. And, um, you know, he was a producer of the movie and the production manager, and we pretty much put together, you know, started to put together the film even more so than Al Nicolosi and uh, Joel Weinkooper I had done for the perspective and the new investors of the movie. And when it all came down to the end of the, the filming, uh, everybody discovered that I was very young, 17 when I signed most of the paperwork, 18 when I directed the movie, and again, it was a case of some of the cast and crew being really upset by this and saying, hey, this guy shouldn't have been able to just step into this without you guys checking him out. Nobody ever asked anything about it, and you know, all my friends uh, you know, were like in their 20s mid-twenties or, or older, so maybe, I mean, I, I don't know, maybe I had some sort of maturity at that time where they couldn't recognize that I was just a teenager, but whatever the case was, no one asked, signed the, signed the contracts, everything was good, but it seemed that, you know, that a lot of people were upset that I got that shot, so, and there were, when we shot the movie, there were actually two to three units running concurrently. Uh, I would direct the main unit and then you would have pickup shots, you would have driving shots because it was a very fast shoot, 12 days 
Uh, we had two different groups, sometimes three, shooting, you know, various scenes. And everything was storyboarded and, you know, very planned out. We had already just, you know, had discussions with the director of photographies and the, you know, the 16-millimeter uh, uh, camera guys. So everybody knew what the shot to shoot. And Yale was, you know, directing some of the second and third unit stuff. And at the end of the day, he decided that, you know, he was that I didn't deserve the credit and that I hadn't earned it. So I went to litigation and, you know, the, the whole thing got crazy and uh, it, it pretty much cost me almost everything I earned to try to, you know, fight, the, fight for the directing and the writing credit. And long story short, very traumatic for me, especially at a young age. It, it felt like my whole world was like crumbling in. And But looking back on it again, it was a learning experience and you, uh, you know, just take the best of it and you either quit and self-defeat and you know forget it and do something else or you learn from it get tougher and you know go on and eventually uh, I did was able to get some of the credits back on the you know some of the releases the VHS releases had the right credits and then of course the DVD release and, and subsequent releases did have the right credits that I was contractually bound to get but it was just one of those things at the time it was you know to me the world was devastated got through it learned a lot about the uh, legal stuff and just kinda tried to make the best out of it and you know went on to make other movies and again it was a great learning it was a great opportunity great learning experience and I can't say enough about you know kind of just like a crash film school course all in one there so it was you know pretty exciting even though the end ended up kinda you know devastating and and uh, upsetting with having to you know use the money I had earned over a period of 18 months to try to fight you know a legal battle but again all part of the crash course of movie making this kinda stuff is not uncommon in the movie business so were you paid much to do truth or dare a critical madness did you gain percentages Yes, I was paid to do Truth or Dare Critical Madness. Um, I think at the time, 1986, uh, when we shot it, I ended up making about $10,000 to write and direct the movie, which to me was a lot of money, but again, 1986. But before that, I was just kind of a you know high school student and worked jobs delivering newspapers and washing dishes that sort of thing. So to me, it was a lot of money to get. Unfortunately, I had to use a lot of it to, um, you know, for litigation, for the writing and directing credit, because uh, when Yale decided that I did not deserve the uh, writing credit, or the directing credit, the, uh, the also included the writing credit, which he viewed as too much being changed, but of course a lot of it changed as any movie will change, uh, it's pretty much, you know, the script is a blueprint. A lot of things change depending on locations, budgets, uh, what, you know, things happen with effects and that sort of thing. And I made all those changes, so it was like, you know, to me, there was no, no cause for trying to take that away either. So I ended up, of course, having to, you know, use a lot of that money to do that. But to me, it was a lot of money at the time. But uh, you factor in that it took 18 months, two years to get started. I was working on that movie um, throughout the last six months of my, you know, senior year in high school, and then the subsequent year. So you know, and it took it didn't come out till July of, you know, 1986, somewhere in there. So it was definitely what you know, 18 months or more. So. Making ten thousand dollars over 18 months is not a lot of money, but to me it was because, of course, 
it was great, you know, because I was living at home and uh, I was pretty much a high school kid for much of that. So, and Twisted Illusions uh, Incorporated was one of the uh, uh, co-producers of the movie, and uh, we definitely uh, had a percent had percentages of the movie. And uh, when all the other companies went bankrupt, we ended up with ownership of the movie. So uh, there was that part of it, and it was signed over to different companies later on. So, yeah, it all worked out okay eventually, but it took a lot of time to do that. And, you know, as far as the percentage part, in the initial release, you know, through uh, VSI and all that, we did not make any money because even though I was aware of the pitfalls of uh, distribution and the way the money could disappear or, or whatever, I'd even read extensively on how the Texas Chainsaw Massacre was, uh, you know, kind of funded by mafia and distributed by mafia and they ended up making millions and millions of dollars uh you know on the movie but the filmmakers almost got nothing they had to sue and that took years but i kind of vowed early on that you know that was not going to happen to my movie even knowing those stories but even knowing that the reality of it is it, it just happens all the time it's very common in the business just like the the credit disputes and the arbitrations and the, the legal maneuvers and all that stuff uh, again I'm truth and air critical matters is just a crash course in you know movie making and all the roughness and and weird stuff that you do encounter so uh percentage wise you know nothing of nothing uh basically i'm not sure exactly what happened it's a long story uh vsi had debt in exchange for debt they gave away copies of the movie supposedly didn't get paid for it other other people purchased copies and then they refused to pay them because there was some sort of other debt the peerless supposedly owed them or uh, actually VSI, which is a subsidiary of Peerless. And it just became a huge legal nightmare of debt. And then, of course, eventually uh, bankruptcies and where everything got you know hung up and there was no money and nobody got any money. So it was a really bizarre and kind of heartbreaking uh, situation. Even as the movie made $1.5 million in uh, foreign sales and sold 30,000 copies and all this was there, uh, but I guess the collection process and uh, and a lot of other things uh, where they couldn't collect for whatever reason, it just made the whole thing kind of nosedive. So, uh, you know, who knows? Uh, <laughs> for a percentage of nothing is nothing when, when it doesn't generate anything, even if it makes millions. And unfortunately, I fell into the same trap that uh, a lot of movies do fall into and a lot of movie makers and creators fall into. Uh, sometimes they're lucky. I know Wes Craven got really lucky with Last House on the Left and enjoyed immense success and financial success with it for many years. He lived off uh, the profits of that movie, and that's what I was hoping would happen with my stuff. Unfortunately, it did not happen that way, so I had kind of a worst of experience uh, in, in terms of everything on Truth or Dare Critical Madness. But again, I, looking back on it at the time, it was really devastating but you know that's the time you would have either quit and just said hey you know what i'm gonna go do something else i'm gonna train to do something i'm gonna manage uh you know a burger joint i don't need all this or you just forge ahead and go hey you know i'm gonna learn from this stuff i'm gonna work around it i'm gonna learn from my mistakes i know more is gonna happen and i'm just gonna continue with it and that's pretty much what i did for whatever reason truth or dare critical madness was a pretty big movie did you feel like you were on your way up after making that? 
when we finished Truth or Dare Critical Madness, uh, yeah, the, it it really got a lot of publicity. I got um, Variety, The Hollywood Reporter, Fangoria Magazine did a huge write-up and review a couple times. So CNN, I was on you know, CNN. I got calls from people all over the country who saw that. And it was, to me, kind of like I, was, I felt that I'd gotten, you know, somewhere pretty good even after all the litigation because I got the writing credit and all the, you know, what I could at the time. I got all the credit that I could. And, you know, the movie end up, ended up on shelves of video stores across the country, right smack next to Friday the 13th and Paramount movies and all the big movies. So it was out there and it did feel like a, a pretty big success. And, you know, seeing myself on CNN and in many articles and just, you know, South Florida Living and Miami Herald and it just kind of snowballed and there was always somebody, you know, interviewing me. There was always publicity and the movie did uh, really well, at least not in terms of collections, but in, in terms of gross, it did really well. I had uh, other interested parties in the next movie and I was working on that. So it definitely felt like... Um, you know, I was on the way up, and you know, definitely I was on the way up compared to you know, a Super 8 movie that was transferred in a shoebox and sold to video stores with a paper, you know, photocopy and insert. And again, the same thing with Twisted Illusions, which was a uh, uh, you know the same situation with distribution, and uh, it had uh, paper cover pretty much. So, and these stores were just very regional, you know, mainly in the South Florida area, other than the van drivers who took some around to, uh, you know, Virginia, New York, uh, eventually California, and a few other states, but it was by no means, you know, every state in the country. So, Truth to Dare Critical Madness was a huge rollout, and most all stores, you know, picked it up back then. It was number Ah, I forget number six or number nine on the all-time rental charts. You know the national, you know, video rental charts for, for you know, quite a while. So you know, it definitely was a success. You know, at the time, as far as you know, and it, and it felt like it for me, definitely. The following year, you made Killing Spree. I know you raised that money for that yourself, but did you approach any companies to get that made beforehand? In financing Killing Spree, um, again we were coming on the coattails of the success of Truth or Dare Critical Madness and yes we you know we had approached many distribution companies to finance uh, Killing Spree and uh, venture capitalists as well uh, I forget exactly what happened but we ended up trying you know ended up thinking that the better approach would be to just go around with our um, uh, you know, with our briefcases and our prospectus to uh, local uh, financiers and investments companies so everybody could make out well that way. And then we could sell the movie and, uh, you know, with, with those profits, keep going. So we did have companies interested, uh, films around the world. Um, they had done uh, Thou Shall Not Kill Except. They distributed Night of the Living Dead and The Evil Dead. And they were... They signed up as our distributor and were part of uh, our deal beforehand. So, you know, that did happen uh, with that. And eventually, though, we did run into a lot of com companies, venture capital groups, who really didn't come through, and more so on Wicked Games, where they turned out to be con artists or whatever. So it made sense at that time um, 
to kind of control it ourselves and try to make the profit ourselves uh, as opposed to, you know, f finding anybody or it would have been nicer, I guess, in retrospect to find a distributor to go ahead and release the thing or and finance it at the same time. But we didn't actually agree with that, you know, for everybody. So, you know, we tried the, the old standby of the uh, limited partnership with limited and general partners and uh, we went ahead and, you know, made the movie that way. But, um, but yeah, it, it does take forever, and it did, you know, it was a very long process either way, and, and it still is today if you try to get a distributor to, you know, finance your movie. Usually it takes forever or, or does not happen, So, or it's their in-house project and they approach you with the ideas. So that's pretty much the way that worked. Why did you stick with film when shooting Killing Spree and not just go with the less expensive video? Well, in shooting Killing Spree again, it was still uh, a case of being on that 16 millimeter high where all my favorite movies were like Last House on the Left, Night of the Living Dead, Evil Dead, Maniac, all those crazy movies and more that were shot on 16. 16 just seemed to be what equaled success in that era as far as, you know, what inspired me. So I wanted to do that when I met uh, Mark Peterson, who was the director of photography of the movie and also co-special effects along with his friend Joel Harlow who he brought in for, for Killing Spree. Mark had just graduated from the New York School of Visual Arts under the tutelage of Roy Frumkes, uh, who did of course Document of the Dead and later Street Trash and a bunch of other cool stuff. And uh, you know they were all 16 millimeter, it was just like that's what the rage was and that's what they trained on and that's what was seen as being professional so you know that's pretty much why we stuck with that had we shot it on beta sp definitely it would have been uh you know definitely probably more profitable a lot quicker so uh in retrospect again we should have probably just shot it on beta sp it would have looked pretty similar and uh you know, would have made a lot more money as uh, as opposed to having, you know, to pay for all those dailies and film exposure and you know, one light transfers and shipping for the dailies and on and on and on it went, color correction on all that. So, you know, in retrospect, again, it was kind of a mistake, especially for a movie like Killing Spree at, at that, you know, particular time in the, the shot on video market. But who knew you know, that the big uh, toppling of 1988 where Vestron and, and all these, you know, Lightning Video and all those kind of companies, you know, would be hit when the stock market crashed and all that kind of stuff, which happened, I think, at the end of 87 or beginning of 88, somewhere in there. So, who knew? But, yes, the thinking of 16mm was just because that was what horror mavericks did. So, we went with it. Am I remembering wrong, or was Hillary Lipton initially supposed to play the lead in Killing Spree? Okay, with Killing Spree, uh, yes, Hillary Lipton was uh, one of the people we were looking at to play the lead in the movie because Donald Farmer got involved, and he had a connection with Hillary Lipton. And we had another actress from Twisted Illusions originally cast. We had a couple people that were cast, and the, and the actresses kept dropping out, mainly due to content... Uh, because the script was very descriptive and eventually they all had second thoughts about, you know, even the local actresses about, you know, being in the movie because they thought 
it was written pretty descriptively, and so eventually they would be like, well, this is pornographic. My husband, my boyfriend doesn't want me to do it. So it became a real stigma, a real problem. Uh, a friend of mine, Donald Farmer, I'd worked with him and done some movies with him. Uh, Cannibal Hookers, the original film, Florida version, and we were friends after Truth or Dare because he contacted me because he used Mary Finero after I gave her a little bit of notoriety in Truth or Dare, and he used her in his movie Demon Queen in that same era, So, and he was living in, I believe, Stewart, Florida, so we would get together, we would go see movies and discuss movies and the business and work together as much as possible while Donald lived in Florida, so it was awesome. So when he moved, uh, I guess, to L.A., I was having trouble casting you know, the lead role of Lisa in Killing Spree, the nymphomaniac housewife. And Hillary Lipton was somebody he was trying to help get the role. And then also, uh, which would have been great, Camille Keaton. He had a connection with her, of course, because he later did uh, Savage Vengeance, which was the unofficial I Spit on Your Grave sequel, which a movie which I loved and enjoyed. And I really wish we could have gotten uh, you know, Camille Keaton. I think the movie would be really cool with her in it, and, and it would give it even more of a, you know, uh, nostalgic, legendary, retro appeal if she would have been in the movie would have been awesome. But uh, she didn't work out for I think scheduling conflict and another person who was up for it was um, uh, I think one of John Waters uh, uh, players, we had her interested into it and she was going to you know, be in the movie and I can't remember her name now, but uh, it was going to be, you know, one of his players. But eventually he found uh, uh, Courtney LaCara, who took the role, and she had been in a movie called, so I think Mind Ripper or The Ripper, a shot on video movie called The Ripper. And, of course, uh, Slaughterhouse, she was in the opening kill scene of that. So she turned out to do a really good job in the movie. And uh, it was, you know, she ended up taking the movie role and, and, you know, doing, you know, really cool, you know, part in there. So, so and that was very last minute, uh, I think a few days before we were, you know, ready to shoot. We were having problems casting that lead role due to, uh, you know, content problems and how graphic the actresses perceived what we were going to do, which, you know, what's written on the page sometimes is just a blueprint and motivation, you know, with my stuff. And, you know, we're not actually doing everything that is written, but, you know, if in your imagination you may see a lot more. But just because the actor or actress an idea of the gist we're going for and they just take it to the level they're comfortable with, but a lot of people didn't, you know, realize that at the time so so those were some of the people that were up for it so you were involved with shooting cannibal hookers in florida um why did that get moved to california and why was hillary never heard from again it was a pretty wild shoot the days i was on the set of cannibal hookers the florida version Hillary was kind of a prima donna, but I didn't have any, you know, issues with her at all. She was she was always nice to me, but rather indifferent to everyone except for Donald, the director. But she did take Donald's direction well and seemed to be into everything that was going on and definitely wanted to be a movie star. Shooting was a bit chaotic with locations changing and people not showing up, the, the usual stuff that independent filmmakers have to go through. And someone didn't show up, and I was working behind the scenes and ended up taking a role in the movie for a spell as a henchman that kidnapped some of the hookers. 
I have some of the old footage from that shoot somewhere, and I think uh, Tony Masiello edited it together for a Cannibal Hookers extra that didn't come out yet, but I do believe it's coming out very soon on one of the uh, upcoming re-releases, if I'm not mistaken. The story goes, uh, Hillary lost her nerve or desire to be involved with things uh, when arriving early at a location one morning. I think it was a big bank or something in Fort Lauderdale. There was a murder, a real one, in the parking lot for real, and she just kind of flipped out seeing the dead body or something like that. And after that, she was kind of really difficult to schedule, and I, I think... After that also, Donald's job kind of folded. He was working in Stewart at some kind of company there. So he decided uh, kind of just to move out to L.A. very suddenly. And we were hanging out together all the time and, you know, watching movies and going to film festivals in Miami and Fort Lauderdale. And suddenly he just pretty much jetted when the job kind of folded. And I guess he went to the uh, job that was in California, probably the same company. So instead of trying to make the Florida footage work from Cannibal Hookers, Donald, when he got to LA, just started started to decided to go ahead and start from scratch and start all over again. Not use any of the footage from Florida. So he just kind of did that around his new job, I guess. I really loved Courtney Lacour in the lead. Never really heard much about her after that. Do you know what ever happened to her? Uh, again, Courtney Lacar was really good to work with. In the end, we had a, a couple. You know, we were we were had a couple issues because we were filming so long, and people took sides on issues. And I think more of anything, lack of sleep, the stress of you know doing a, a independent movie on location at the producer's house. Everybody was high strung. And looking back, you know, it was really nobody's fault, just personalities clashing out of, you know, tiredness, a lot of friendly fire where we didn't even realize it. But, uh, you know, everybody was great to work with, and everybody did their best to just finish it under the, you know, circumstances. Joel Harlow uh, really shined in the end. He really helped me get through and keep shooting and keeping the effects going on that. I think the last day of, of shooting, we were like 24 hours straight because, you know, Courtney had a flight to catch and and was going to be leaving and, you know, because she was from L.A. and all, all these different people were going to have to leave and the, the lights were burning out, but uh, Joel Harlow and I were kind of soldiering on no matter what as everybody was passing out uh, you know on the stairs and in the, the living room as we just struggled to finish that movie any way possible and, and we did finish it just so we had as much footage as we could get at the time to you know have in the editing room so after that uh, I think Courtney became a teacher and a if I'm not mistaken a mother and got married and didn't didn't really pursue you know the acting as much you know later on I think she went into a, a different direction so I think that's pretty much what what happened to her I know sometimes people uh, seek her out on social media and she'll she'll comment on it and stuff but I, I don't really think uh, She's in the business too much these days. What was the budget on Killing Spree? Did you turn a profit? The budget on Killing Spree was like $75,000, and a lot of that was deferments, which means, you know, we owed people on that. And it took forever to pay some of the, uh, again, the processing and, and film stuff, um, for the 16mm film and the dailies and, and stuff like that. So no, we did not make a profit on it uh, at the time because uh, it was just too much weight in terms of sales and we could never come to a conclusion with uh, anybody 
as far as you know getting the proper advance from a distributor and the investors always wanted to do something else and then we ended up self-distributing the movie we had to raise more money and it just went on and on and on and on and on so at the time no it did not turn a profit and you know in the era that it was uh, released now since then over the years, uh, it has. You know, I buy copies to to sell myself. So what I put into it, actually, you know, I made back. But then I just put it back into you know republicizing the movie. But from an investor standpoint, no, the movie did not make really you know any kind of profit at that time. Unfortunately, you have any good stories from making Killing Spree? Wow, making Killing Spree, there were so many crazy things that happened. Uh, I mean. Working with like Vincent Miranda, who had worked on Shockwaves and wrote the uh, books for uh, you know and uh, on horror movies for elementary schools and 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 such. He, he wrote these books on ghosts and horror movies. Working with him on stuff, it, it was always so fun. And Joel Harlow, uh, you know, in the the very beginnings of his career, he went on to win an Academy Award for Star Trek, uh, the, the first remake, and works with Johnny Depp and Steven Spielberg and, you know, all the, the, the big guys. Every summer he's got a blockbuster movie coming out. This is, you know, one of the movies that uh, he and Mark Peterson started out on, and Mark has done real well for himself in the New York, uh, I guess, uh, documentary-type uh, commercial scene. So, you know, all these guys were really, you know, real professionals. Uh, one of the cameramen is now... Uh, one of the, he's like a leading score guy. He scored uh, Rogue One, the new Star Wars movie, and I mean, so you just got uh, all kinds of people, you know, at the very early stages of their career, and uh, you know, just doing crazy stuff. But you know, good stories in particular is just that movie was a blast to make for the most part. There was uh, asbestos felt in the speedos cleaning the floor, and he was a maniac, and we kept him on the set, you know, by giving him scotch and. Even though he was seemed plastered most of the time, the minute we roll those cameras, he was like spot on and alert and knew his dialogue and would would be able to you know do his marks and take his place and do everything perfectly take after take. So it was just like an amazing experience. So uh, you know a lot of the movie and just kind of tracking that. It was just a real. Real, you know, exciting time for me seeing again, you know, the the just the whole process of writing something on paper directing it and seeing those pages come to life with actors and their interpretation of things and collaborating with everybody so you know it was just you know an absolute uh, absolute blast uh, there were there were moments on the set of, of complete zaniness where the assistant director chased one of the producers around in the backyard threatening to kill him and and all that kind of stuff I mean there were like I said there were we all went mad kind of mad making that movie for various reasons and I think a lot of it was just like I said the stress of shooting in somebody's house the blood flying everywhere camera gels catching on fire everybody in a bad mood a lot of times just because you know we we're sleeping an hour or two the heat was incredible so again I have so many memories on that movie good and bad and kind of merged together into gray that uh, you know again it was just another experience like truth or dare critical madness where you kind of learned and you're either gonna quit doing this stuff after you do it or you're gonna file it all and and figure it out in your mind and then process it 
and figure out how, how to do better and make it better, you know, for future productions, which did happen, fortunately. Everything that I did on Truth the Dare and Killing Spree, uh, you know, I applied the mistakes and tried to correct those for future movies and, you know, have smoother shoots even when shooting on videos. So, so again, there's just so many stories uh, with, with Killing Spree that were just memorable and exciting and, you know, asbestos on the set, just coated in gore and doing the the paddle fan scene and everybody just moments where everybody was just so enthusiastic about the gore and it was just that era where you were kind of like dawn of the day which was inspired by where you were like creating innovative ways just to kind of kill people and then the zombies came back so it was just you know a ton of fun all of those deaths uh joel harlow putting all the food stuff into uh joel weinkoop's uh, a chainsaw scene and ripping that out of his stomach and throwing the intestines across the floor and using the catering food. I mean, the chainsaw was real and and uh, asbestos was swinging around and Joel was so nervous he was just like practically sweating bullets and we had like an, an above shot from the rafters where the chainsaw came up and we had a glass plate protecting the camera and the chainsaw blade came up and shattered that. So, I mean, all kinds of close calls and mishaps and crazy stuff happening to get that movie done. So, uh, again, it was an experience that I'll, I'll never forget. There was a good six to seven years between Killing Spree and Wicked Games. What was happening during this time period? Well, that's a good question. Uh, after we finished Killing Spree, uh, again, we, we shopped it around. I couldn't get the investors to align with what the distributors were offering. The distribution landscape was changing after the stock market crash and the Vestron crash and the oversaturation of uh, B-movies and... You know, as the studios kind of took over control of, uh, you know, what people wanted to rent in the video stores more and more, you know, the studio movies were coming faster into the video store. So I, I refer to that period as a distribution abyss where um, Killing Spree took like three, four years where I had to learn the market. And I d eventually with the investors, I decided, hey, I'm going to distribute this movie myself on VHS. We're going to make it get it out there, we're going to make the boxes, we're going to do the posters, so we had to raise more money for that, and it took, you know, forever to learn those ropes, uh, I read Video Business Magazine, Hollywood Reporter, those were kind of the Bibles that I was going by at the time on how to distribute, I got a job at an independent video store uh, in that era, where, I, again, I learned tons of things, like connections with Rack Jobbers and Comtron, who was the biggest distributor, or rack jobber wholesaler at that time and I just kind of learned it all and did it all and uh, it just took years you know and again struggling financially myself you know I had to stay afloat and uh, you know earn a living and and that kind of thing so it, it was just a tough time but uh, I think by 90 1990 the end of 90 October 1990 and then end of 1991 and 92 you know, that's when we began to sell the movie on VHS and get our posters out there. And it took, it was a much bigger, uh, much bigger project, much longer than I expected. So, you know, doing all that and doing the mailing and follow-ups and trying to, you know, connect with these distributors and get the accounts going and the, the pay schedules and, you know, waiting six months, shipping product and... Uh, getting approval from, you know, accounts for duplicating and all that kind of stuff, and phone bills and, you know, company and 
and incorporation and taxes and all that stuff so it was just again it was a huge business learning experience and that part of it the red tape part of it was just kind of like a nightmare but again in order to get the movie out there that's you know what we deemed necessary later uh, we ended up selling the rights to magnum entertainment in a deal that uh, donald farner farmer negotiated and then later, Films Around the World did some stuff with it. And then later, SRS Cinema. And then it was sub-licensed again to Camp Video. And uh, they did a really nice uh, DVD release of it. And then when you know, the rights reverted back to uh, uh, SRS Cinema. And they've done a dynamite uh, couple additional releases on DVD, VHS. And then finally... a. Kind of a Blu-ray that had the original cut and then kind of a, a director's cut, which was just kind of everything in the kitchen sink, which some people really enjoyed just, you know, seeing that in kind of a more primitive, long-take form, which, you know, were not, were not much was cut from that raw footage. So, uh, pretty cool. So, you know, it's enjoyed a long longevity after that, so... So that's pretty much what, what happened during that time period from... 1988 through 1992. Now, Wicked Games was shot on video. What made you finally decide to go to video? Well, I'd always shot on video, of course, early on. Uh, again, I worked with Al Nicolosi, and he was kind of my mentor and, and that kind of stuff. And we never had a problem shooting on video, a three-quarter inch or half inch. Uh, Twisted Illusions was shot on video, analog video. To me, the look was always fine, and so, you know, it just became a, a thing of economics. It was like, you're not going to make the money back shooting on film. So, after seeing, uh, you know, a lot of successful movies shooting on video, or perceived successful movies, like, to me at the time, Midnight 2, John Russo and J.R. Walter, you know, teamed up to make that one, the sequel to Midnight, and I thought that was a pretty cool movie. Uh, America's Deadliest uh, Home Video, Jack Perez, I thought was a really, really uh, excellent movie shot on, uh, like, at the time. I think 8mm or high 8, something like that. So at that point, I said, hey, other people are, are shooting on video and doing sequels of movies. Why not do the Truth or Dare 2 movie um, on, uh, you know, video? What's, what's the big deal? It's going directly to video anyway. So at the time, we used a combination of Super VHS and high 8 and uh, just decided to go for it with uh, Wicked Games. So Wicked Games Truth or Dare Part 2 was shot on high 8, edited on Super VHS. And, uh, you know, we had a blast making that thing and, uh, again, learned a lot. And uh, it, it did over, you know, over, over the years, it did, you know, finally break even and, and make a little bit of money back. So it all worked out in the end. I never really thought about it before, but three movies in a row had a theme where the wife was thought to be screwing around on the husband. Is, is, there, is there some reason for this running storyline? Well, yes, of course. Uh, you know, the, the springboard for most of my projects and most of my movies, even, you know, uh, all through now with Zombarella, uh, the segment we did that in that, uh, Cosmic Desires is about a housewife who is sick of her kind of philandering, uncaring husband. Uh, you know, kind of I always started out with uh, the uh, marital or boyfriend-girlfriend chaos theme. And, of course, yes, I did get that from real life. Uh, you know, as a teenager, uh, I had many rejections, as probably most of us do. 
And, you know, I saw through life how that affected people, whether it was divorce or boyfriend-girlfriend breaking up or just marriages that ended or somebody cheating. And I always thought that was, you know, the ultimate human springboard uh, of, of when your heart gets broken, how you can react and, and or not react, but how devastating that is, like grief and how, you know, if you let yourself really go, it can just really lead to a darkness or, uh, you know, something very terrible happening if, uh, you know, if you really, you know, just didn't care and felt like you had nothing to live for. So I kind of explored that in all the themes, and it's just kind of a recurring theme in, in all of my movies. And, of course, in real life, you see how this happens with lots of cases of, of people getting killed by, you know, one spouse or another, or even their children. And again, it's still a theme that even in 2020 here coming up that I'm still kind of dealing with because it is just the springboard for violence and turbulence and chaos in, you know, real life, which can apply to, it's just such a, such a great springboard for material and, and of different, actually different stories where different things happen, but this this is like the root cause of the chaos is the betrayal of one person to another whether it's uh, even murder uh, we've got one short coming up where one spouse decides to murder the other and there's double crosses and kind of like a blood simple type of thing going on there and then you know, like a double twist ending and and all this crazy stuff so it's just a really good springboard for violence and mayhem and and all kinds of mischief you know, can work well in a horror movie. And somehow that theme has kind of always followed me, and I've always just kind of naturally go to that theme, and it just lends itself, you know, whether I've gone through it personally or seen through, seen it, friends or family go through it or whatever the, the reason is, or even read about it in a headline, uh, just asking the question, what if? What if this spouse or person, you know, did something crazy and decided to get a knife or a gun or a setup or whatever and just say it's a lot of uh, creative stuff is just saying why you know what if or cathartically taking something that you went through and going well what if I had done this and then kind of you know doing it in a fictional way and seeing probably how terrible it worked out and you, at the end you get, got a cathartic release and you're really glad you didn't even do what you were thinking but uh, it makes for you know an interesting fiction so that's kind of the reason for this storyline and it just always seems to lend itself to you know a different story Joel Weinkoop seems to be a pretty prominent actor in many of your movies well, again, Joel Weinkoop and I go way back. He was my babysitter in the uh, 70s when I was growing up. He was a few years older than me, and he was the guy across the street making movies, doing stuff. Uh, he moved away later, and I later reconnected with him when I was making Day of the Reaper. His nephew saw the ad I took out in the War Cry, the Jupiter High School newspaper that advertised Day of the Reaper as being available in video stores. I took out an ad in the newspaper, and Joel and I reconnected. And uh, that's where we made Twisted Illusions, and he was the star of the original Truth or Dare. At the time, he just had acting aspirations, and I had writing and directing aspirations. And, of course, Joel, at that point, had made his own movies and Super 8 movies and had written and directed stuff. But we made a, a good combination where I could have, like, this adult actor be in my movies because everything that I was trying to think of, even though I enjoyed the Friday the 13th movies and those kind of things... Uh, Oh, excuse me, I ended up, you know, wanting to 
kind of approach everything from an adult point of view and have adult characters. So it was quite quite interesting because like the Hollywood producers were making. Uh, uh, movies with teenagers, and I was a teenager making a movie with adult themes, so, you know, go figure. So, uh, you know, Joel was perfect for that, and uh, we had the, you know, the same likes. Uh, we liked uh, superheroes, dinosaur movies, monsters. I liked horror more probably than Joel, but I kind of brought him back into that fold, and I remember when we, we connected, when he first called me, I'd just come back from a screening of uh, Terminator, the original, and we were talking about that movie, and on, on how good that was, and how awesome it was, and, you know, all that kind of thing, so we ended up doing Twisted Illusions, but we had another movie going that was kind of a scanners type of thing called Inner Forces that we were going to do before that, and, uh, but we ended up going with the anthology thing, because it was uh, cheaper and easier, and, and we thought less focus was needed on, you know, the actors and stuff, keeping everybody together with no money for you know short attention span and a shorter time frame so and of course that led the truth of dare cast joel and killing spree as uh, and joel was up for like the lead role and uh he was going to be mike strauber reprising the war role and um truth of dare critical madness the feature and i did fight for that because i thought he would be great in the role because he played it in the short and twisted illusions However, the producers felt otherwise, and we ended up bringing in John Brace, and which you know, was was kind of devastating. But uh, you know, when you get into the collaborative thing where there's bigger money and other people involved, you've got to kind of either fold in your cards or or play the game. So we played the game. Joel Joel was able to stay on as a stuntman and in a small role, which became a big role in, in Wiki Games, where we kind of tied in things, you know, from that he was a character from the original Truth or Dare that was continuing the legacy in uh, Wicked Games, and then later, especially, Screaming for Sanity, where it tied directly into Truth or Dare, where his sequence in Truth or Dare was explained better. So, so that's how we, you know, Joel was, you know, always, again, spot on, on time. Always, uh, you know, ready for, for action and does a great job, does his own stunts, ready to just, you know, get down and dirty and, uh, you know, get something done. And uh, so he's, he was reliable and cool and we were, we were friends and I could talk to him in shortcuts and say, hey, remember like uh, like in Indiana Jones or like in Blood Feast or like a Chuck Norris thing there, you'll do this or do that. And we, you know, were really able to uh, take that shortcut and and do real well together and and he just did a great job in all the movies that uh you know we made together at the time i hope you enjoyed part one of the tim ritter interview part two will be out next week and you won't want to miss it so follow the draculina podcast and you will be notified when the new one comes out or you can also go to the draculina.com website for any info concerning draculina so until next time don't let life suck the life out of you